0: Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel, that's what we've been studying, we've spent some time here in chapter 9, I um, wish we had more time, but we'll, we'll, we'll end this in about 30 minutes, and uh, we'll go right to baptism, but uh, let's turn there, we're going to look at chapter 9 just for a few minutes, and spend some time looking at this truly glorious chapter, this, this betrayal, this picture of the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And we're going to see this in, this in this chapter. And then, as we're done, as we close, we're going to have baptisms again. To see, in picture, the beauty and the glory and the mercy and the kindness and the love of God in baptisms. It's a very special thing. We're glad you're here this morning. So you can see through scripture and through baptisms a picture of God's grace. And really what this church is all about. We've been studying together these two books And we are now in chapter 9. David now is king over all of Israel. He has unified the northern tribes and the southern tribes together, 12 tribes together. He has unified them as one nation. He has captured the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. He has carried in the Ark of the Covenant, this this tangible, this visible manifestation of the presence and the power and the rule of God into Jerusalem. Then in the grace of God, by the grace of God, God makes a covenantal promise with David in chapter 7. Very important. He promises David that he will give him a great name. To make him a great name, he will give a place for his people to dwell in safety. He will give from David's line, from his offspring, from his seed, a king. An ultimate king. Who will sit on an eternal throne. Who will ultimately who will be ultimately fulfilled in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 opens up. Jesus. Am I on? Yeah, sorry. You you all heard me. I had a big mouth, I know. Jesus. Mike Varney's thinking right now, we're going to have to tape that though tomorrow. We will. Jesus, the ultimate one. It says in Matthew 1, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And we learned last week when we studied chapter 8 that the narrator put together chapter 7 and chapter 8 on purpose. He weaved together the the Davidic covenant that God made with David in chapter 7 and right after that the reason or the purpose or the the picture of what that looks like in chapter 8. Last week we saw in chapter 8 that David had not only... um, um, Conquered but subdued God's enemies now as the rightful king. He's expanded, if you remember from last week, the borders of Israel. He he grew in in wealth and and military might. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, it says that David now is reigning in God's kingdom in justice and righteousness, chapter 8, verse 15. We said that this expansion, this this expression of of, of this just and righteous kingdom was the embodiment of God's rule, a picture of God's rule on earth. David is God's chosen, anointed king. David is the one now under God who rules as if God was ruling himself. He rules with justice and righteousness or uh, equity. It's a little glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like when Jesus returns in all his triumph and glory. It's when the new Jerusalem, it's a picture when the new Jerusalem will descend, Revelation tells us, out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride for her bridegroom. This is just a foretaste of that. When the new king will come, Jesus will establish an eternal kingdom. In fact, We said last week, Mark chapter one, remember Jesus, the king, the true king comes on the scene. And the first thing he says in his public ministry is very simple. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. Repent, turn from sin and believe the good news, the gospel. And we know that Jesus came the first time to die as an atonement for our sins, to be buried and to rise again on the third day. But when he returns, scripture is clear. Everything broken will be fixed. All fear will be gone, and joy will be permanent. Suffering will be no more. Poverty and injustice will be over. Hunger, disease, and death will be gone. And we said last week that chapter 8 is this present reality of, of Jesus' reign and rule today in the hearts of people within his church, his people, and yet, it's yet, it's not yet. It's already to come. It's a, it's a picture of what will happen. It's the already and the not yet. Here in chapter 9, here in chapter 9, David is living in peace and security, and David will remember the covenants that were made between himself, David, King David, and Jonathan. David is a flawed man. We're going to learn that in two more weeks. But here, like God, David is keeping his promise. David is keeping his covenantal promise to Jonathan. If God's grace is working in your life, if you truly understand the grace of God, if you are humbled by the truth of God's unearned, unmerited love and forgiveness toward you in the gospel, it will spill out onto others. That's the takeaway. David has experienced God's love. David has experienced God's covenantal love toward him, and now it's impacting others. Seven was the Davidic covenant. Eight was this expansion, this this picture of the kingdom, and now here in chapter nine is an expression of the king's kindness toward others that's why the title of our sermon is the kindness of the king so there's our outline That's what i'm going to do i'm going to read to you chapter nine and then we'll just jump into three things and uh, then we'll end up and have baptism so if you have your bible second samuel chapter nine hear the word of the lord the infallible inspired authoritative word of god second samuel chapter nine and david said is there anyone left in the house of saul that i may show him kindness for jonathan's sake now there was a servant of the house of saul whose name was ziba and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king, that would be David, said, is there, any, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Remember, Saul's son is Jonathan. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, "He is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel and Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am his servant. And David said to him, do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Accordingly, to all that my lord the man, king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son, and Mephibosheth, as a young son, had a young son whose name is Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth, I say that a couple times, lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. The story opens. With David inquiring, is there, is there anyone left in the house of King Saul so that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left? Now, in order to understand what's going to happen, let, let, me, just, let me just say something to you. In chapter, this chapter, in verses 1, 3, and 7, we actually have the word Kindness. Now, I don't know why the ESV who I'm reading from. I'm not sure what your translation you have, but I don't know why the ESV translated that Hebrew word kindness. Because most of the time, when that word, that Hebrew word, is translated, it is translated steadfast love. Except here, I don't know why. There's no real reason for it. I don't think. The word steadfast love should be familiar to you if you've been here for a little while, because we've been studying the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word chesed. Okay, it's very important that you understand that word. It means steadfast love. It it is not just love of of, of loyal love. It's a a faithful love. It's a love that keeps a promise. It's not just kindness, but dependable kindness, not simply affection, but affection that has committed itself. It's a word that God used for himself. In Exodus 34, when Moses is going back up to the mountain to get a fresh uh, set of tablets, he asks the Lord, show yourself to me. And God reveals his name to Moses. And he says in verse in chapter 34 of Exodus, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hased, steadfast love. And the reason this love, this unmerited love, this this committal love, this loyal love and grace is desperately needed, the reason David is showing this chesed is because we find Mephibosheth in a terrible place. The condition we find him in, he is in need of love. He is the son of Jonathan. He is the grandson of King Saul. If you remember in chapter four, when... Saul and Jonathan were, were killed. The word came back to the nurses taking care of this young boy. He was five years old at the time. And when they found out the king is dead, the son is dead, and now the grandson or the son of Jonathan uh, doesn't have parent or a grandfather who's the king, the nurses grabbed him and ran in fear and in haste, and they dropped him at five years old. And he became lame. Now, remember, this is before SSI. This is before government assistance. If you can't fight, you can't work in those days, you're in deep, deep trouble. In ancient times, if you were disabled or you were born with a birth defect, (laughs) you were often marginalized, ostracized, thought of as as sinful. Jesus dealt with that as well. Add to that condition, if you find yourself lame and you're the son of grandson of the king, you're in worse condition because in those days when a king would conquer a land, when a king would, would go in and capture and, and conquer a people, he would kill everyone that was even closely connected to that kingdom. He didn't want a problem or an uprisal, uprising in his, in his kingdom. New regime. Everyone knew it. Everyone practiced. In fact, if you look down at verse 6 and 7, after Ziba is, is, is uh, requested to go get this grandson of, of, of Saul and son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, look at it, verse 6. Man, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and what did he do? He fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. Yes, David. As he's, that word's prostrate. He's prostrate on the floor. What does David say? Do not fear. Look at verse 8. Why is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? He's even speaking disparaging about himself. And here he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he was summoned by the king. And he knows what house and lineage he's from. Saul, the king that was conquered, the king that was rejected by God, the king that was, was killed ultimately by the hand of God. And now Jonathan is the only one left maybe in the whole family. Now, the king is calling for me? He must want my head. And he's afraid. He was sure. He comes from a uh, disgraced family. God rejected his father, ripped the grandfather, ripped the kingdom from his hand. He is disabled. He lost the family wealth. He's in great need of chesed. Unearned, loyal love. So here is David in, in, in ultimate power of, the, of, the, of, the, of Israel, and the expectation was to annihilate everyone involved, all supporters of the past kingdom, and here he is administering what? Justice and righteousness. He's fulfilling a promise he made. He is showing kindness to someone who could never, ever, ever earn it. It's unearned, it's unmerited kindness. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. That's the gospel. Romans 5, while we were still weak, while we were still powerless, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for you, for me, for us, That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, like like Mephibosheth, we were born into a rejected and disgraced family. All of us born into Adam's family. Born into sin under condemnation. As Mephibosheth fell and could not walk, we too have fallen. Genesis 3. Unable to walk in such a way that could fully Satisfied god's righteous demands, and like Mephibosheth, we too would have perished without the help of someone else, and just like David, who who makes the first move, just like David who who acts out of loving kindness, who who calls this lame boy to himself, but just like David who takes him into his family, just like David, who speaks peace and protection and provides from him. That's exactly what God does for us in the gospel. God makes his move while we were still sinners. He acts toward love, he acts and loves us while we were still in our sin. He, he calls us out of darkness, he adopts us into his family. He provides what we need to escape eternal hell. Paul would say this to Titus for we, Paul included, the apostle included, for we, were once foolish and disobedience led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. But when the goodness, listen, but when the goodness and loving kindness, there's our word, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, nothing you could do, but according to his own mercy, The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that rebirth, whom he poured out on us richly through who? Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified, being made right is by grace alone. And now we are, Paul says, heirs. Heirs. Children. According to the hope of eternal life. God has been kind and gracious to us, God has show us, shown us much loving kindness. In the gospel, we were powerless, yet Christ came. But there's more. Look at verse 3. Now you see the, the motive or the reason for this said this love to Jonathan. Verse 3, and the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of what? Of God. So the kindness of God said, you see what David is doing? He's remembering, David is remembering back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is re- re- returning back to his homeland where, where King Saul was after Saul was trying to kill him on, I don't know how many times, multiple times. Jonathan sees the writing on the wall and, and Jonathan, he sees the writing on the wall and seeks a covenant with David that someday, he says to David, 1 Samuel 20, someday when you're king Jonathan talking to David, Saul is still king. Someday when you're king, enter into this covenant with me. This is what he says. Jonathan says to David, do not cut off your steadfast love. David, you're going to be king. My father Saul will no longer be king. Someday you're going to be king. I believe what God has declared. When, When you are, do not cut off your steadfast love from my dynasty from my house from my lineage forever don't do it david when the lord cuts off every one of the enemies of david from the face of the earth david you're going to reign and rule god's going to destroy your enemies but please remember the steadfast love show it to my family david is keeping that promise david is keeping his covenantal promise the oath he swore to jonathan but also look He is giving him the chesed that he's received from God. The the, the grace of God. See what it says? The kindness of God to him. I want to show you God's kindness to you. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies, do good to those who harm you. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Paul's expectations in his church plan in Colossae Paul's expectation for those who receive the grace of God, who know the loving kindness of God, what are they to do? He says in chapter three, put on, because of the gospel, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, put on humility and meekness and patience and forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you too must forgive others. You see what he's saying? Now all of us, I'll speak for myself. I have lots of room to grow in those areas, (laughs) okay? Maybe you don't, but then you'd be lying, so you gotta work on that. (laughs) But it's still the evidences of grace. If you are rehearsing the gospel, if you are repeating and preaching the gospel to yourself every day, that he is holy and perfect and righteous and just, and we are sinners who deserve damnation and hell, but by God's grace, Jesus comes and takes our sin upon himself, dies in our place as our substitute, takes the wrath we deserve, and now by grace alone, there's nothing we can do to earn this. I've received the gift you've given to me. That should spill out. That should spill out. Life being transformed by the gospel will spill out onto others. Now, I I want to just a side note, just a side note. Some of you here this morning may be struggling with boundaries. I deal with it all the time. Some of you may be dealing with boundaries. This is not a call for meekness and kindness and gentleness and love. It's not a call for you to be manipulated or abused. Or a call to be continuously sinned against and call that love and compassion. If you struggle with boundaries, if you struggle with the Apostle Paul told the church in Philippi to increase and abound in love with all discernment and knowledge. If that's a struggle for you, seek help. Our office is open. We can connect you with somebody where you can know and discern the truth of what love and compassion and kindness really does look like. The reason for the king's kindness was there's a need. And he's showing the grace of God that he's he's been given. Look at the result. The first thing that David provides Jonathan with, which we said was protection, protection, right? Greatly needed for a man who's lame, he says, do not fear, verse seven, do not fear. There's no longer, while you're here with me, while you're in my kingdom, while you're in my home, you have nothing to fear, the king will protect you. I'll protect you, even though you cannot walk, you cannot fight for yourself, as you're with me, do not fear, okay? Don't fear me, don't fear others, right? Little children, John writes, adopted children, sons and daughters. You're from God. You have overcome the enemy, the evil one. For he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. You're protected. Number two, David provides. Look at verse seven again. I'll restore the land of your father. would be grandfather, Saul. That's the way they say it back then. All that your family has, I'm gonna restore to you. Look at verse 10. You and your sons, well, he's telling Ziba, listen, here's the land, till the land, feed yourself. Everything that... You had, I'm restoring to you. Why? Because the gospel, the good news of the gospel is a gospel of restoration. Right? Restoration does not mean reversal. I wish it did. (laughs) It doesn't mean reversal. Restoration doesn't mean, the, the past I've spent spinning my wheels without Christ and all the pain I've caused myself, my family and others cannot be reversed. The emptiness of the past will not, I will not get back. We will not get back. But, The future restoration of the gospel doesn't compare to that which was lost in the past. God's restoration is of much greater importance because it is a deepening love and communion with Christ. Okay? Paul would write to the Philippian church, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The emptiness and separation from our loving God is restored in the gospel. We can trust God to restore those years and bring fruit for his glory, right? So we're in the seed. We just keep throwing those seeds, God getting glory in it. When the prophet told Joel, I love this verse, and I used to quote it back when I, when I came to faith after all those years of just running the streets. The prophet Joel told uh, Israel, God would restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. He didn't say we're going back and God's gonna turn the earth around and, and we're going back six years from now, some sort of time travel. No, those years are gone. But the following years as we walk with him, He'll restore. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing in every way, Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work. There's protection, there, there's provision, there's restoration. And look at verse 7 again, a glorious position. Protection, provision, now position. Verse 7 C. And you shall eat at my table always. You shall eat at my table, David says to the lame. Always. Now, think about the table. Think about the table. There's Amnon, David's oldest son, at the table. There, there's Tamar, beautiful Tamar, at the table. There's Absalom. The scripture says, from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, no blemish. There's Joab, David's nephew, the captain of the army. There's statesmen. There's king's secretaries. There's dignitaries. And then hobbling in, maybe carried in, maybe limping in. He could hardly walk Mephibosheth to the table. <laughs> what a picture of the messianic kingdom. What a, what a picture that all people are welcome to come to the Messiah's table. The extravagant kindness of the anointed king and his table is one of the ways that this scripture and David points to us, reveals to us Jesus, the true and better king. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, whose kindness and generosity and reversal of shame to honor is the banner of his rule. All are invited to come, Jew, Gentile, lame, poor, outcast. John, excuse me, Luke 14, Jesus says, call the lame and the weak to come to the banquet of God, to the great banquet of God. And let me tell you, family, everyone spiritually is just like Mephibosheth whatever race, whatever culture, whatever class, whatever profession, if it weren't for the grace of God, if not for the wrath-absorbing substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, we would be enemies of God. But now, (laughs) we're sitting at the king's table because of the true king of kings' act of kindness and love, giving his own life for ours. We're washed in the blood and now... We share in the banquet of Jesus forever. And in the consummation of the ages, Revelation 19, the Apostle John tells us, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) The result. Look at the response. I want you to see something. I want to point this out to you. Look with me again. It is the heart of the narrative. David said to him, do not fear, Mephibosheth, for I will show you chesed, Loyal love, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I want to show you love. I want to, I want to uh, show you covenantal love. Why, for the sake of your father, Jonathan? What did Jonathan do? If you remember again. Samuel anointed Saul. Then Samuel anointed David to be the next king. And we know that all heck broke loose, right? Saul is doing, it seemed like every moment, waking hour of that man's life, he's just trying to kill David, right? And and, and one of the reasons was because if David is out of the picture, Saul can kill David, then the next king would be Saul's son, Jonathan, right? But rather rather than join his dad, rather than... Jonathan, rather than joining his dad to killing David, what does he do? He doesn't seek to kill him. He doesn't seek to take out David so he could become the rightful heir. They become friends, covenantal friends. And in, in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20, they make covenants together. And here's the thing I want you to see. Jonathan swears with an oath. Jonathan swears with an oath to protect David from his father. I will protect you, even though I'm trying to honor my dad over here, and he does. But what does he do? He protects Saul. Excuse me, he protects David from the murderous threats of Saul. He protects David. And eventually we know Saul and Jonathan die. Both of them are killed. Jonathan makes his promise. David's still alive. But Jonathan and his father Saul are killed on Mount Gilboa. Now I want you to see this. David had a friend who loved him covenantually, who puts himself in arm's way to rescue David out of arm's way. Who lost his throne so David could ascend to the throne. If you remember, what does he do? He takes off his sword. Jonathan makes his covenant to protect David. And what does he do? He takes off his sword. He takes off his robe, takes off his sword. and gives it to David. I recognize God's anointing on you. He lost his throne so David could ascend to the throne. David had a friend who lost an earthly throne to save him. And we have a friend who lost a heavenly throne to save us. David had a friend who died on Mount Gilboa for him. We have a friend who died on Mount Calvary for us. Jesus actually says, no longer I will call you servants. Instead, I call you friends for greater love. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Do you see the gospel? Do you see this, this gospel of substitution? Do you see this gospel of imputation? Mephibosheth doesn't deserve all of this. All of this is given to him because of Jonathan. Jonathan's work, Jonathan's work is imputated, credited to Mephibosheth, and he's brought into the king's presence, into the king's table. You and I don't deserve his love, but for the sake of what Christ has done, for us his righteousness is imputed to us our sins are given to him Paul says I want to be found in him in Jesus Christ not having a righteousness of my own because he couldn't but a righteousness that's through faith in Jesus Christ a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith family listen once you see that with all your heart once you realize that you were an enemy of God who now Because of Jesus, you are a child of God. You have a friend who's dying like Jonathan, but only greater. His name is Jesus. Then you will know the chesed of God. Then you will know the loyal love of God in the gospel. Behind me is a tank filled with water. Behind me is a tank filled with water. And and everyone who is being baptized today are being baptized because they've responded to to the chesed, the kindness, the, the steadfast, loyal love of God in the gospel. The tank of water is also symbolic. As as the table of David, as, as Jesus invites us to the table, as, as the lame and the weak who could never earn their way into the table, Jesus makes a way by his death, burial, and resurrection. And we see here the water is, is symbol symbolic as well. They will come into the water. And as they stand on the water and then they go down into the water, they are... Publicly identifying with their Savior and Lord. Who died on the cross, bearing their sins, going into the grave. Who was their substitute and was buried. Paul said it was him, Jesus, who was made sin, who knew no sin. Made sin meaning meaning our sins are imputed to him. He got what we deserve. Who knew no sin. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And as they go in the water as identified with their Savior who died for their sins, they come up out of the water representing and symbolic of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ three days after his death. Paul will say, you're buried with him in baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. <laughs> so let me ask you this morning. Will you acknowledge like Mephibosheth, that you and I are completely and utterly unable to save ourselves, to justify ourselves, to earn the kindness of God, the loyal, steadfast love of God. Will you, like him, respond to the love that God has extended to you? The band's gonna come up. Everyone else sit. Ben, come on up. We are all dead in our sins, unable to respond. Yet God, in his loving kindness for us, gave us his son. His son died in our place as our substitute, bearing what we deserve on himself. Our sins were imputed to him, and his righteousness imputed to us. And now we can be reconciled to God. That's what this baptism is about. That's what this story is about. So we're going to sing. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior life, this morning is the morning to do so. And just acknowledge I'm a sinner. I can't earn my way to God's love, but God has shown me his love in Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, I can be reconciled. I can be made right with God. And I've got to respond by turning from my sin and trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that in this next song. Trust the Lord Jesus in your own heart before him. And maybe you're here this morning, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're rejoicing of the unmerited, loyal chesed love that God has toward you, toward me. Worship him in spirit and truth. The band's going to play. We're going to respond in faith. Everyone who's being baptized can come with me through my office as the band begins to play. Father, thank you for the love that you've shown to us. Father, thank you for the kindness and mercy that you've shown us in the gospel. If not for you, Lord, we would be paralyzed, we would be flat on our back, we would be dead in our sins, but you have made us alive. Because of Jesus Christ, help us to respond in faith, trusting him, alone, alone, for the forgiveness of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.